Hey, come in. Come in. Hey, hey, hey. All right. You got everything about how how much how what percentage of the the uh, thing you got? Well, it looks like uh, we were getting about forty percent. All right. Good. 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 Where are they right now? Uh, okay, they're uh, in the courtyard and they're walking along the north side and they just walk behind uh, the jazz combo. Okay. Holy crap, is that Robert Shields of Shields and Yarnell? The mime group? I was just going to say that, yeah. The okay. famous mime, the, fi- the famous mime Robert Yarnell. Where'd... I thought it was. I thought it's it Robert, was Robert Williams. It's, it's Robert Shields. Robert Shields Robert. of Shields and Yarnell. I don't know yeah. mimes. Who? 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 Who's a famous mime? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yarnell's walking up. Walking oh, up. To oh. Quick, reposition the microphones on those two mimes. We know that you know, Mr. Cole. For your own sake, don't get involved any further. We'll be listening to you. Three, two, one, Mark. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Late Seating. I'm Jason Harding. And I'm Steve Shives. And on it this that way. show, why not? Let's, <laughs> let's make it a 1970s game show. Oh, and on this that. show, we take a classic movie and see if it lives up to its reputation, whether that reputation is good or bad. <laughs> well, that's I'm, right, Jason. And this time around, we're going to be reviewing the Francis Ford Coppola classic, The Conversation. Oh, boy. Steve. Yes, Dave, yes, my friend. Do you have any uh, trivia for I, the conversation? I do have some trivia for the conversation. In fact, I, I specifically looked some up for this show. You didn't memorize it? Just you know. No, I didn't memorize it, no. Okay. I'm going to be don't... on book for this, yeah. But I've been memorizing all these facts about these movies. why I've been steadily becoming more and more unstable the longer we do this show. My brain is filling up with garbage That's... that I don't need to know. <laughs> That's why you've become progressively lower functioning as a person just in general over the That's past right. several years. But if someone says, hey, who was in that movie? And I go, oh, that was that was Tiffany Timberlake. She's only made two movies. And one of them was a flop. It was called Debbie Does Everybody. And I, then she retired and became a U.S. senator. What's your, what's your middle name, Jason? I don't remember I don't anymore. <laughs> All right, Steve. Trivia. So yeah, I'm I, here. We go trivia. So I'm hungry for it. You are you ready? You ready for this hot trivia? I am. So Gene Hackman is actually playing the saxophone in the scenes where we see Harry playing the saxophone. Don't lie to me. No, it's true. Don't do that. And I already think he's awesome. I don't think need to think that he's more awesome than that. He learned to play it specifically for this role. Which, to me, personally, is cheating because he's an actor, so he should act like he knows how to play the saxophone. To actually learn how to play it, I think, is, is not fair. What do you mean it's not fair? It means he's not awesome. fair. He's maybe, maybe he's always wanted to learn the saxophone, maybe. and now this opportunity presented itself. Or maybe he's just a show-off. Maybe the original script from Coppola, he was playing a kazoo. <laughs> and he was, like, not challenging enough. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to be able to play the, the saxophone for this. Coppola's like, whatever, I don't care. <laughs> Coppola's like, you're going to do it in two scenes. I don't care. Go ahead. Do whatever you want. Well, good for him. He's even more yeah. awesome than I thought he was. I know, right? Isn't he? Isn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So this movie is sometimes interpreted as a reaction to the Watergate scandal, which was Bullshit. ongoing at the time of its release. Bullshit. Actually, I, oh, that's what I'm getting to. <laughs> 
Because it came out while Watergate was still a thing. Nixon had not yet resigned, but Watergate was like a big story when it came out um, and had been for a while. Then there was wiretapping and that. Yeah, exactly. So, but Coppola wrote the treatment for this movie in the mid '60s, and just it mm-hmm. took a while to get it made. And sure. all the and all the details in the movie about spying and surveillance equipment and stuff like that are the result of you know independent research and talking to technical advisors and stuff. And because there were mm-hmm. a lot of people sort of thought like, well, you know, they read about all the Watergate stuff in the newspaper, and that's where they, and it's like, no, that was completely like any resemblance between the conversation and Watergate is completely coincidental. Mm. Um, they were already well into the production of the film when Watergate broke and became a huge story. And it's mm-hmm. just it just sort of worked out that there was a big wiretapping scandal in real life and then out came this wiretapping movie so right no it doesn't have anything to do with water yet they're not yeah um the uh the original cut of the film is four and a half hours long how in the fuck is it four and a half hours long well i'll tell you this movie is isn't even what it's not it's not even two two hours hours long it's not even two hours i'll tell you how it's four and a half hours long is there There... a two-hour piece that was cut out of him sitting depressed and alone in his apartment (laughs) it's just an uncut scene of him working with that audio tape for two hours (laughs) in real time backing it up listening to it again it adjusting a knob backing it up listening to it again mm-hmm. uh no apparently there were uh there were subplots that were completely cut out there was a subplot about um other people in harry's apartment building uh complaining about plumbing problems oh, that would wow. have re- th- that would have revealed that harry actually owns the building um and so when other people complain about the plumbing like they are unknowingly complaining about it in front of <laughs> the owner of the building um okay and and also uh there was apparently a subplot that would have uh established that harry has a teenage niece who is thinking about running away from home and harry is trying to talk her out of running away from home and that added two hours to the movie apparently jesus yeah I'm, well I, I would say I'm, darn. I'm glad they cut it out <laughs> darn we missed yeah. all of that riveting interplay about plumbing and yes yeah runaways it's like you watch the conversation and you just think you know this is good but it would have been better if harry was a secret landlord and also if he had a niece you know it just it's missing something maybe the niece ties into the sympathy that um he gives Anne in the movie yeah right that's the only thing where the thing that i maybe that tying into that but you know, good. I'm glad it was cut yeah. out. Yeah, me too. I think it was a very smart decision. Yeah. Um, so Francis Ford Coppola has said that this movie would never have been made if not for The Godfather. Sure. Because it was only after the success of The Godfather that Paramount Pictures agreed to fund the conversation. And yeah. also, yeah. And also the car that we see Cindy Williams sitting in at the end when uh, when Gene Hackman sees her after he gets thrown out of the building um that is a car that paramount pictures bought for francis ford coppola after uh they a studio executive agreed to buy him a new car if the godfather grossed above a particular amount because while they were shooting while they were shooting the godfather uh there was this station wagon that they were traveling in from location to location and francis ford coppola kept complaining to the studio about having to travel around in the station wagon and so the executive said well i'll tell you what francis 
You know, if the Godfather grosses more than X amount of dollars, I'll get you a new car. So mm-hmm. the Godfather became a massive hit. And after that, Coppola went to a car dealership. Uh, and according to the story, he was accompanied by George Lucas, who, of course, is his very good friend. So yeah. Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas walk up to a car dealership in the 70s, <laughs> pick out this car that we see in the movie. And uh-huh. Coppola says, and Coppola says, send the bill to Paramount Pictures. Yeah. And I don't know who to car. root for in that fucking story, Stu. <laughs> I, re- I, I honestly, the thing that stuck me in my craw was Francis Ford Coppola complaining about having to ride around in the station wagon. I'm sorry. Did your entitled little pompous ass get get chafed riding well, around I, in a I, commoner's he, car? You, you know, he, lear- he learned his lesson after Did Apocalypse he? Now, and he had to spend the next 25 years working off his debt to the studio. I bet he would have liked to have a station wagon then, huh? Mm-hmm. I bet he would have hey, liked to have had a decent career post-Apocalypse Now. Hey, what car did they give you to drive around on in when you were making Jack, you fuck? <laughs> what, was that, what, was that, what was that movie like, huh? So they um, went out and they bought a limousine? Yeah, yeah. It's like I think it's it's like a Mercedes limousine or something. Yeah. Um, uh, and last little yeah. bit of trivia. Last little bit of trivia. Just 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 something, you know. Um both Francis Ford Coppola and Gene Hackman consider this to be their favorite film of the films they have made. With good reason. With good with, with good reason. Yes, indeed. So, that's all I got. See, I don't know if it's my favorite Hackman performance. Well, you have so many to choose from. I mean, my God. Well, his I mean, career is full of great performances. You know, Little Bill. Yeah, I think that might be my favorite. Although I really do like this performance. It's it's such a it's such a different character for him to play. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, for sure. Um, anyway, that's all the trivia. That's all the trivia. No more trivia. Okay, cool. That's all the cool. trivia. All right, time for me and the who made it. This is gonna be yeah. short. It's like the recap's going to be pretty fucking short, you guys. <laughs> he listens to some tape. He listens to it again. He feels and bad. He feels bad. <laughs> he goes He goes home. He feels bad. He goes to visit his girlfriend. He feels he bad. Feels he, bad. He, he makes her feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> he goes to a convention. He feels bad. He makes everyone who interacts with him feel bad. <laughs> you get to see why the alternate title was Everyone Feels Bad. <laughs> And you understand why it's Steve's favorite movie. <laughs> I love the ones where everybody just kind of feels bad. All the time. All right. It was yeah. written, directed, and produced by Francis Ford Coppola. I don't have to tell you what else he's done, but movies like Jack the Bear and uh, The Godfather 3. There you go. Yeah, his his, his, his highlights. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably his best script. Yeah. And... Uh, you know that's saying a lot because uh wait a minute did, no he didn't co-write the i don't think he co-wrote the godfather, the godfather. No, i think the godfather was all puzo yeah what did puzo do three or was that coppola i don't think puzo did three i think puzo wrote one and two okay uh starring gene hackman as harry cowell i don't longtime listeners don't need to hear me pontificate about how gene hackman is my favorite actor and i love him to death and i wish he was my grandpa or the fact that he doesn't want to, he don't want to act no more. So he don't act no more and leave him alone. Yeah. He's probably playing his saxophone. Exactly. Good old time fishing. Going, I wish I had a grandson that understood me. That's what I think. 
<laughs> then one day he goes, I'm going to try these podcast things. And he listens to our show and he goes, that man could be my grandson. And I legally get my name changed <laughs> <laughs> to Jason Hackman. Yes. Uh, John Cazale is Stan and you know him from the Godfather movies and a dog day afternoon. And yeah, he's one, he's a, he's one of the signature actors of the seventies for me. Whenever I see him in a movie, yeah. I think ah, I must be from the seventies. There's John Cazale. And he gets eaten by a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> That's not him. Is it? That is, him. I don't think, is it him? I don't think it is. Yeah, him. I'm, I don't know. I don't look I don't it remember. up. I gotta know. I'm going to look it up. John Cazale, let me see. Because I thought he was dead. Yeah, he died in 78, so, yeah. That's right, he died in 78, so he couldn't possibly be in it. See, right? he was a, he was a, he was an actor from the 70s. He didn't even make it out of the fucking decade. Well, what did he die from? I don't know. That's let me crazy. Look, let, let me go to the death section of his Wikipedia. Oh, lung cancer. Oh, that makes me sad. Yeah. Then who in the hell was in Jurassic Park? Uh, I don't know. A guy who looks like John Cazale. Um, I don't even remember the character's name. Who was, was the, the, yeah, the, the, the lawyer guy? Um, oh, this is exciting. <laughs> thrill as they look up actors from a movie. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I don't know. I think, no. Joseph Mazzello, that he played Tim. That he was one of the kids, yeah. I think it's Martin Ferrero. Yeah, that is it. That's yeah, who he is. Yeah, Martin Ferrero. And he popped into existence right after Kazal died. Suspiciously so. Whatever. Okay, but he's in this, and uh, he plays Stan. Alan Garfield is Bernie Moran, and he was in movies like The Candidate, Nashville, and Dick Tracy. Cindy Williams is Anne, and you know her from American Graffiti. And that's it. She never had a TV show personality. No, she was never on a long-running sitcom. Definitely not called Laverne and Shirley. Laverne and Shirley? Um, she's still alive, I think, right? Um, yeah, I hope so. She's got to be. She just no, she no. Oh, she just died earlier this year. Oh, did she? She died in, really? she died in, Jan she died in January. Yeah. How old was she? Seventy-five. Someone tell Opie. <laughs> Someone needs to tell Opie. Ain't nobody got to tell Opie shit. Weren't they fucking at some point? Her I don't know. I don't in real know. life or on a show. <laughs> I don't know. I did see a movie. I did. Oh boy. So I left Showtime on and fell asleep. And when I woke up, there was a movie on called the. I think it was called the All Nudie Musical. Okay. And I woke up. I woke up, and they were having like a casting call, and there's fucking Ron Howard waiting in line to audition for this porno musical, and I think his only line was, "Is this SAG?" And then he's not in the rest of the movie. <laughs> That's hilarious. But Cindy Williams was in the movie. I don't oh. know. I remember reason. her from, she was on an early David Copperfield special. Okay. Uh, Frederick Forrest as Mark. <laughs> I'm moving on. I love it. Mark. <laughs> and he was in uh, Apocalypse Now and Falling Down. He's got one of those faces. You'd recognize him. Yeah. Harrison Ford as Martin Street. Nothing. Uh, Michael Higgins. <laughs> <laughs> He Harrison was Indiana Ford. Solo, the fugitive who might have been a replicant. A year before Star Wars. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Higgins is Paul, nothing. Elizabeth McRae is Meredith, a bunch of TV. Just a bunch of mm -hmm. TV. And then she, I guess she up and decided after being on TV shows like Gomer Pyle and you know a whole bunch of other family-friendly stuff. She's like, fuck it, I'll get completely naked for this movie. I don't care. 
Screw it. <laughs> Terry Gar. Yeah. As, as Amy Fredericks. And you know, from you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Young Frankenstein. And boy, they didn't try, they tried to make her so unattractive in this movie. Yeah. But that weird wig that she's wearing. And I don't even think she gets up out of the bed in the scene that she's in. She does to go get crackers. Oh, that's right. Remember, she goes and gets crackers and comes in and she eats crackers in bed. But I'll tell you what, Jason, I wouldn't kick I know her out of bed you, for eating crackers. I know. You love her so much. I know. I know. I would. I'd kick her the fuck out of the apartment. You, what are you doing eating crackers in bed? Get the fuck out. We sleep here. We sleep here. We're I'm not, not going to sleep in crumbs, Terry Gar. We're not animals. We don't sleep in our own filth. We're not animals. <laughs> Mark Wheeler as receptionist. Nothing. Robert Shields as the mime. He's barely in this. I mean, the mime. We only ever see him through the telescopic lens of the people who are surveilling people, right? Right. Yeah. So, you know, whatever. He shouldn't even get a credit. And let's face facts. Yarnell got more work than he ever did. She's the fucking robot from Spaceballs. And that's yeah, it. Yeah. Take, take that, <laughs> Robert Shields. They were married, weren't they? Shields and Yarnell? Were they married? Um, I don't know. You I'm going to call about, it. Yeah. They were. They were married. Okay. Just they were having <laughs> silent mime sex for years. No, that must have been fun. Um, and they weren't even touching. <laughs> uh, uh, gives whole new meaning to man in the box. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm tempted to cut. Keep that going. Joke Just go. Right Keep going. out of the Keep show. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> Phoebe Alexander. <laughs> Phoebe Alexander is Lurleen. Nothing. And Robert Duvall as the director. And you know him from everything. He's another one of my favorite actors. Yeah. He has what? Four lines in this movie? He has like a scene and a half. (laughs) Francis say, you have to come here. You need to look upset. You say four things and then we wrap you in plastic. Oops. Spoilers. Um, (laughs) For those who haven't seen the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, he's been a Godfather, Great Santini and just tons of other stuff. Cinematography by Bill Butcher. Forgot to research it. I don't know what else he's done. Good job, Bill. You did great in the movie. Congratulations. You guys want to know more about him? Do my job for me. Uh, Production companies. (laughs) Oh, wait. Music. Oh, wait. Edited. Boy, I'm just skipping over everybody. Fuck all all of them. Edited by Walter Burke. Sorry. This morning, I had an emergency interview with somebody. Work crap. So I did get to finish my research uh walter edited by walter merch good job richard chu good job you also helped save star wars so good job richard uh, <laughs> thanks <music>. richard <laughs> uh music by david shire okay i it was one it was one instrument very simple score to this yeah it wasn't it wasn't terribly complicated production company the director's company Distributed by Paramount Pictures, the Brazil release date was something, um, something, April 7th, 1974. Running time, 113 minutes. Budget, 1.6 million. Adjusted for inflation, 9.7 million. Box office, 26.8 million. Um, I think I reversed this somehow. <laughs> what I happened? think I reversed it. Uh, the, the box office was 11.7 million, and 
adjusted for inflation, it's $26.8 okay. million. But I reverse them. I was about to say box office, $26.8 million. Adjusted for inflation, $11.7 million. <laughs> the box office has lost value over the years. Somehow it reversed itself. Anyway, hey, Steve. Yes, are, my friend. Are you, are you ready to go into this sunshine and lollipops world? <laughs> Of one of the happiest men we've ever seen portrayed on screen. Oh, yes. I can't wait. Okay, then let's me and you. Uh We're the cheapest plastic rain slicker we can possibly (laughs) find. Yes. Let's sit alone in our spare, our Spartan apartment. Play saxophone by ourselves. (laughs) Not trust anyone. Is this about you? Put our phone in a drawer. (laughs) (sighs) And let's run happily, giggling the entire way (laughs) into the world of the conversation. There's a square and people are staring at it. Yeah, and it's we're seeing it from way high above and there's people walking around and there's there's a a, a guy and a girl. Well, first we see they they pan in and we see uh, uh, Cal. Harry. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, he's like milling around and he he walks. Uh, doesn't he walk up and sit down on a bench? Something like that. And then we see. Oh, no, a guy. he walks. You know, he he walks by the mime and he completely uh, ignores the mime as as, as any decent should. person would. Yeah. <laughs> and we keep hearing this weird kind of audio overlay, and um, yeah. Then we see a guy who looks like he's a sniper, right? Right, but it's not a gun; it's a microphone. Mm-hmm. And we catch keep keep hearing these snippets of this couple's conversation, and one guy is a dork, and the other one is like Cindy Williams. You know Cindy Williams, looks? yeah. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. they talk a bit, and then Harry goes in a van, and they're surveilling this couple. First, they've been hired; they're they're personal surveillers. Now, yes, they make this point in the movie. It's against the law to wiretap, but it's not against the law to surveil, right? Right, right. So as long as you're not like going into somebody's house and planting bugs or tapping their phone or whatever, like, mm-hmm. you, can, you, can, you, can, you can record them without their knowledge. Even though they go to a convention in which they can, they show they, about the <laughs> They're totally going into people's houses and planting yeah. bugs. <laughs> anyway, inside the van is one of his employees uh stan. stan yeah and stan's like i'm looking at all the girls and uh harry's just looking out the window and he's like what do you think they're talking about and what does he say he says i don't care yeah harry doesn't care what they're about. talking he says i all i want yeah. is a good recording all i want yeah all he wants is a good recording because once he's that recording is done he's going to sell it to the people who hired him right yep. that's right that's what it's all about mm-hmm but eventually those those two cute kids catch on that they think they're being listened to because they have a guy they have a private a cop that's making some money on the side and uh he gets spotted and they take off and i would like to say right now boy it's nice to see sam the san francisco that i remember growing up (laughs) that's right this is san francisco yeah Mm mm-hmm you think Dirty and Harry's running around killing people at the same time? Every everything that's set in San Francisco has happened. It's it's a San Francisco universe. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's Harry, what I assume. That's right. Dirty Harry's there. Yep. Harry Cowell is there. They're all named Harry, apparently. It's Harry a lot of Harry's doing there. underhanded things in San at Francisco. Some, some point in the 1980s, they're going to be visited by Klingon Bird of Prey, right? Yep. 
That's right. Starfleet had Dirty Harry's going to see it and go, there goes the neighborhood. <laughs> He's just going to start shooting at it. He's just going to start shooting. That's why they had the cloak. Because they thought, oh, this, wait a minute, Dirty Harry's here. He should have shot Chekhov. He's the reason why Chekhov is in the hospital. <laughs> see, that's a crossover I'd be completely fine with. Mm-hmm. Dirty Harry shows up out of nowhere and blows Chekhov away. <laughs> Anyway, Harry gets home, and there's a lady there that wishes him a happy birthday. Yeah, and wait a minute. What are you talking about? How do you know it's my birthday? Yeah, he gets a little paranoid about that. Yeah. And, and what is What does she say? Something well, like, I well, hired he, someone well, to tell you. <laughs> he goes to, you know, she says, you know, happy birthday and then he goes to he goes into his apartment and there's a mm-hmm. bottle of wine like inside his apartment with like mm-hmm. a birthday card so harry's like well this will not stand so he immediately pulls his phone out of the drawer where he keeps mm-hmm. it That's and he right. calls presumably he calls the lady who wished him happy birthday in the hallway who lives mm-hmm. downstairs <laughs> and he basically wants to know how did you get into my apartment why did you don't ever do that again i thought i have a key to my apartment. why do you have a key to my apartment i want that key give me that key i'll kill you give me the key I'll, I'll kill I'll... you <laughs> He doesn't say that, but he's and he's actually I mean, he doesn't get like outwardly and angry. She said, watch how you talk to me. <laughs> but he's just, you know, he's he's, he's, he's obvious. He's obvious. He's paranoid and he's obviously very perturbed that mm. his privacy was was violated. Yeah. Yeah. And his house is pretty spare. Yes. When one would say almost Spartan. It looks yeah. like it, that the furniture in it is the furniture that came with the apartment. I was just going to say, it looks like a furnished apartment. Like, mm-hmm. it's just, yeah. And so then he plays the saxophone all by himself for a little bit, and then he goes to yep. work. Yep. And what's work like? It's just a big, it's in a warehouse. It's a it's warehouse. Like in, it's yeah. in the corner of an empty warehouse. A f- right. uh, yeah, like there's the, the floor, there, there's like, yeah, the corner is kind of Harry's work area where his workshop is and it has all mm-hmm. of his equipment and stuff. And then the rest of it is just like an open floor that he's not doing anything with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's him and Stan are there and he is working over the tape that they recorded uh, the day before that we saw um, in the first scene. And he okay. has the... Uh, I'm listening. No, you're. I'm okay. listening. I was just okay. you know, was going outside. That's okay. all. Outside's <laughs> neat. You should try it every once in a while. I have. I can see the outside right over there. Okay, fine. Well, if you saw a pair anyway. of feet walking around, you'd want to know whose feet those were. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Okay. So anyway, so so they have the they have the the three they they had three tape recorders running uh, to record uh, Cindy Williams and her boyfriend the other day. Yeah. And so, so Harry, and we get to see a little bit of his process, a little bit, nothing is explained, but you can kind of watch and get the idea technically how it works, where he, mm-hmm. he, it's all real to real tape recorders and he sets up the first one and then the second one and the third one. And it's three tape machines that are all sort of on the same circuit. And when he hooks them up and starts them, then he can just push one button to control all three yeah kind of mix them and match yeah yeah so he can hear them all at once and they're all synchronized so he's getting like the complete version of what the three different microphones recorded yesterday and he tunes them and turns one up and one down and so he can get the best and he's recording it into onto a new uh track so so that you know the client will get the best possible recording of whatever mm-hmm. they recorded and so. that takes nine hours it seems like a very painstaking process doesn't it 
And is this goes, where Stan kind of gets on his nerves? Because Stan, Stan or no, gets on and Stan does get on his nerves most of the time. But well, yeah. I can't remember the reason why Stan gets on his nerves this time. What I do know is that he leaves and makes a phone call from a payphone. And who does yeah, he call? He, he calls uh, the client, the person that he recorded this for. And he mm -hmm. says, hey, I've got the tapes. When can I drop them off and get my money? And Harrison and Ford says, what money? Wait, who is this? Who is this? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, because apparently Harry had an, a he had a very specific arrangement with the director that he was only supposed to put the tapes into his hand. Mm -hmm. He wasn't supposed to drop them off anywhere or give them to anybody else. So Harrison Ford on the phone says, "Okay, well you can come by tomorrow at two thirty. Yeah, and drop and 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 hand over the tapes." And Harry's like, "All right, cool. See you." tomorrow buddy well, do it and what did we hear on the tapes oh well how, we haven't because we've heard we we hear them talking about they're they're going to do something mm -hmm. uh, on sunday they're going to meet at a hotel room on sunday and do something and there's a little piece of the conversation that we that in up up to this point we haven't heard yet because harry mm -hmm. actually goes back and works on the tape a little more later on but there's a part of the conversation that's a little garbled and mm -hmm. isn't quite tuned in yet from the recordings um, so there's like a mystery part of the conversation that we don't mm -hmm. get to know yet, but it's Cindy Williams and the other guy talking about some stuff that, you know, and then also there's other stuff like she sees a homeless man sleeping on a bench and she talks about how sad it makes her and, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to do anything about it because I'm an American. <laughs> Homelessness is just one of those things. I guess there's no way to fix it. Oh, well, capitalism only works if there is a large sub base of the impoverished. <laughs> yep. <laughs> anyway and he goes to his and he goes to his girlfriend's house yeah amy and he's just as sad and remote as he always is yeah and then and he looks, don't like being asked no questions no because she doesn't know anything about him right yeah and it looks like they're gonna about to make whoopee and what happens uh well yeah she asks him a question about himself or something and and he says and he all right i'm he's like yeah. i'm leaving goodbye we're broke up now we're yeah well, I, mean, I think she she actually says that she says i don't yeah. think i'm going to wait for you anymore mm -hmm. harry. Yeah. yeah and then harry it's, says you never used to ask me questions and then he leaves i have better conversations with michael rack thank you very much <laughs> the next day well and then we get to see him kind of indifferently take the like he's not upset he's not like sad right he no yeah then he shows up at great big corporate building and he runs into harrison ford and harrison yeah. ford is like where's the money lebowski no i mean he's like where's <laughs> where's the tapes harry yeah he's like do you have them and he's like yeah and he's like they have a fight over handing off the stuff yeah because well because i think at first harry's gonna let him have it but then harry he he has second thoughts because um I think he asks, doesn't he ask like, what's the director going to do with it or mm -hmm. what, you know, something like that. And, um, so Harry, and he has the money at this point, Yeah. but he, gi he gives the money back and starts to take the tapes and says, I'll, I think I'll just wait mm -hmm. until I can yeah. give it to the director personally. And Harrison mm -hmm. Ford like tries to grab it away from him and goes, you don't want to get involved in this. And they have a little, a little and fight. And then like, Harry, yes, I do too. Yeah. And then, then he leaves. Yeah. You don't scare me. He gets in the elevator, and who's in the elevator? It's Cindy Williams. It's Anne. Bum bum bum, and he's like, yeah. "Oh hey, do, I do, was do. I was surreptitiously recording you the other day." So he goes back to his workplace where he's just starting to work on the tapes again, yes. right? 
And this is when he has some trouble with Stan. Yeah, because Stan wants to, Stan is curious about what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Stan is interested in the content of the conversation. And that gets on Harry's nerves. And Harry kind of gets, loses patience with them and says, look, it doesn't matter what they're saying. That's not our job. You know, we're not, Mm -hmm. we're not here to judge them or learn about them as people. Mm -hmm. We're just here to record them, do what we've been hired to do. That's our business. What they're (laughs) saying, what they're talking about is not our business. And Stan's like, all right, Jesus, sorry. And then he works on the tape some more and he uncovers that bit of the conversation. Yeah. Where where the, the guy says, the guy says to Cindy Williams, he says, you know, he'd kill us if he had the chance. And Gene Hackman's like, what? Who'd kill him? What's going on? I do work. I'm this is bad. They've also brought up the convention. We forgot to bring up the convention. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's a there's a, a there's surveillance a convention. convention. Yeah. But first he has to go to church and confess to a priest. <laughs> yes. His many sins that he took mm-hmm. a newspaper without paying for it, that he right. says the Lord's name in vain sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh and also and was, some, some yeah. people are going to get murdered and I don't know. And also some people it. might get murdered because of what he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the priest is like, whatever. I don't and then care. we go to the convention and we get all the, the most high tech. This is laughable. The most high tech <laughs> stuff that the private private surveiller can get in 1974. Right. Yeah. And he meets this one vendor. Um, what's his name? I can't remember the guy's name now. Um, it's is it? It's not Paul, is it? No, no, it's uh, Moran. Okay. Anyway, yeah. he owns a business. Everyone wants to do business with him because Harry is kind of famous in the right. In, yeah, in he's the like industry. a big deal in the in the the surveillance industry. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. He's like, hey, let's get together and let's do this and let's do that. And he's got a lady with him showing off stuff, this new bugging technology that you can do remotely by the phone or whatever. But who's working for him? Uh, Well, holy shit, it's Stan. Yeah, Stan couldn't take it no more. Yeah. And Harry's like, come back to work for me, Stan. I can't have you working for somebody else. You're going to you're going to tell him all the shit that I have at my place and you're going to I don't trust you. So mm-hmm. you need to come back and work for me. And Stan's like, oh, I don't want to, but okay. Yeah. So then he runs into Harrison Ford. Yeah. And um, what does Harrison Ford say? Something like, we're not planning a murder or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're not planning a murder. And he says, he says the director, doesn't he say the director will meet with you on Sunday? And if you mm-hmm. want to give us the tapes, then, then we'll have your money. Like, yeah. 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 And so then he agrees I guess to host a party. Yeah, at his office, like at his work, at his, at office, his workshop. Right. Yeah, in the warehouse. Yeah, and the the guy, the guy, whatever his name is, Morton Moran. Is, yeah, Moran is being a prick, right? Yeah, He's he is. Constantly needling him and saying, "How did you do this job? And how did you do that job?" And just when Harry starts to like feel like he's relaxing a little bit, right? Because all of a sudden he's the life of the party. He gets really close to this one woman who's hitting on him super hard. Yeah. And he's feeling like he might be opening up to her a little bit or whatever. You know, he, Moran had slipped a mic into his pocket and then the guy yeah, is oh, in, a, in a pen. A, yeah. A complimentary pen. Ha 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 yeah. ha. And then that's when we find out about this job that he did spying on the Teamsters. Was it it? the Teamsters? Yeah. Yeah. And that resulted in three people um, being found naked, uh, wrapped in plastic with their heads cut off. And that's what a thing to happen. 
that's apparently when he left New York and yeah. came to um, came to uh, San Francisco to start doing work. And then he yeah. kicks everybody out except for the lady. Mm-hmm. And it's we're starting to get the idea that he's concerned for the Anne character, that he's doing something that's going to get her and her stupid lover killed because she's yes. married. She's married to the director. Yeah. And then he lays down on a bed. A woman gets completely naked, and I guess they have sex. Yeah, it's. I guess that's implied. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then he has a dream. Yeah. What's the dream? The dream is that he's following Anne around. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tells her a little bit about himself in the dream. It's the only time in the movie where we learn any kind of biographical information about him. He says mm-hmm. that he was really sick when he was a kid and his mom used to give him baths. And there was this one time where his mom put him in the water, but then she had to leave the room for something and he was sinking in the water and it was like rising above his his nose. Um, and he has this great film noir line where he says, I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of murder. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's a that's something out of a hard-boiled detective novel. Um and and then he says to her in the dream, you know, he'll kill you if he gets the chance. And then he mm-hmm. wakes up. And then he wakes up and what's happened? The lady that he had sex with is gone. Mm-hmm. And so are the tapes. <gasps> mm-hmm. So he, he let took his the tapes. He let his guard down and yep. now he's paid for it, right? Yes, he has. So he gets another call from the director because yeah. he has he has photos. Right. And, and, they, and they're like, okay, bring your photos and we have the tapes. The tapes are with us. So you just come over and give us the pictures and we'll give you your money. Mm-hmm. And so they, they, to, they, had the, they had the lady steal the tapes because they were afraid Harry was going to yeah. do something to him, mm-hmm. which he probably was. <laughs> yeah, he probably was. Uh, then we get to meet Robert Duvall, who's really super upset about yeah. the content of the tapes yeah and then they give him his money yeah and then he gets to get the fuck out and he has to leave now he knows that this sunday where they're going to meet so he right. goes to that hotel and he says i would like the room right right next to that one and they're like okay and then he starts to surveil that room through the wall and right. he hears some scary violent maybe violent stuff that happened right Yes, he does. Mm-hmm. And, and he's he, already kind yeah. of had a premonition of, you know, her being attacked. Right. Yes. And so now he's upset. He is distraught. So we can add distraught to his uh, his general malaise and depression. Right. <laughs> yes. He stays in the hotel room for a little while. Then he sneaks over to the room. He's looking around. He doesn't see anything. Right. Everything looks Everything Good, looks clean and normal clean, and yeah. But then he flushes the toilet and it vomits up all the blood and, yeah. and toilet paper. And I'm like, oh no. Oh no, someone has a very heavy flow and you shouldn't flush those <laughs> in the toilet. You shouldn't flush those like that. No. Um, he freaks the fuck out and jams back over to the the, the director's building. The, direct, the office building, yeah. And they won't and, let him up. They won't let him up. They're forcing him out. And then as he's being let out, he sees what? He sees Anne in the car. In the car. That's right. So apparently she's okay. Well, that's good. And then he grabs a newspaper where it says the director has been killed in an automobile accident. Hmm, He goes goes back to the building and she's being asked a whole bunch of questions because now apparently she as the wife of the director. She's in control of the business. 
Right. And um, now he figures out what they meant by that line, because you said it, you know, he'd kill us if he had a chance. When yes. the emphasis was, you know, he'd kill us if he'd have right. a chance. Right, exactly. He hears it different mm -hmm. ways at different times. Yeah, because it, it, it's, a, it's a matter of interpretation. Mm -hmm. And yeah, this, the last time we hear it, it's very much, you know, it's basically a justification for them killing the director. You know, he'd right. kill us. He heard it he in a particular chance. way because yeah. he was afraid for Anne. Now that he knows different, he knows that the Harrison Ford character, the boyfriend and the wife were all in, in on it. Yeah, to, ki to kill him. And he has a little flash of what happened in the hotel room. And yeah. it's them killing him. And he goes, okay. And he goes home and he plays saxophone. <laughs> and then he gets a phone call. Yeah. And it's from Harrison Ford. Who doesn't want to get a phone call from Harrison Ford? I would maybe, love a phone call from Harrison Ford. Maybe he'll mumble some stories about the making of Star Wars into the phone. <laughs> hey, kid. That's awfully close to your uh, to your uh, you know who voice. The what's for dinner guy. Oh, oh, Sam Elliott. Well, He's I'm not exactly old. rich little, am I? <laughs> well, you should be. You answered the ad. Um, <laughs> you specifically requested a rich little type for the co-host of this show. Anyway, he says we're watching you yeah because apparently they got in there and they've bugged his apartment yeah he said and we know that you know so you better not tell yeah also if we're capable of doing this why did we hire anybody to do the thing <laughs> good point why did we why did we very good point an outside contractor why didn't we just do this ourselves something like that i don't know anyway um and this freaks him out and he tears this place apart like yes, literally tears his place apart looking for the bug. He starts knocking holes in the in the thing. He tears the the furnace apart. He uh what else? He tears up the floorboards. Oh yeah. Just yeah. He's not getting that security deposit back. There's no well, way. If he owns the building, who gives a shit? That's true. If the deleted scenes are considered part of it, then he apparently mm -hmm. owns the building. But yeah. But he fucking thrashes the place and then he goes back to playing his saxophone. The end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> That's it. That's all. So, Steve. Yes, my friend. What's your, what, how do you feel about this classic film noir, except that the main private eye character is a manic depressive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> the conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. Oh, shut up. Um, no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a damn near perfect movie. Mm -hmm. um, I love this movie and it's, it's built around, um, this fascinating character who is being brought to life by one of the greatest actors of his generation, giving one of his greatest performances. Like there's just, mm -hmm. there's nothing not to like about this movie. Um, <clears throat> this is Gene Hackman's movie. So let me talk about Gene Hackman. Um, well, he's practically in every shot. I think he's, I, I think he's in every scene. He's in almost every shot. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this is this is one of my favorite Gene Hackman performances. We were talking earlier about it. And I mean, I do. Yeah, if I have to pick, I think my preference would be for Little Bill in Unforgiven. But this mm -hmm. one is right up there. And it's a lot of people's favorite Hackman performance. It's Hackman's favorite performance. Um, and one of the things I love about it, and we touched on this, we hinted at this a little bit earlier on, but it's so different from so many of his other signature roles. Because if you think about the other movies that Gene Hackman is well known for, like Unforgiven, 
the French Connection, Mississippi Burning, Crimson mm-hmm. Tide, Superman, Poseidon Adventure, Hoosiers. Like those are all roles that give him moments where he can kind of show off as sure. an actor. You know, he they give him big speeches and big emotional beats and he gets to yell and get mad and be animated and ham it up. And, and he's great at that. Um, but in the conversation, he doesn't do any of that. Harry is so quiet mm-hmm. and so self-contained and so pathologically private that in the hands of a lesser actor than Gene Hackman, he, he might come across as a really flat character. But Hackman finds these ways of letting us see how consciously this man is controlling himself and of how his work, and particularly the job that is the focus of this movie, um, is affecting him. Mm-hmm. Um, because Harry, one of the things about Harry is he wants his job to be his job. And he says that to Stan. He says, I don't care what they're saying and what we're recording. I just want a good recording. Um, Mm -hmm. And but of course, his job isn't his job or his job isn't just his job. Like we see that his whole life is built around this job. He has Um, become his job. Yeah. We see how his expertise in surveillance and knowing all of the different ways there are to secretly record people. That has driven him inward mm-hmm. and made him secretive and made him paranoid and suspicious of other people. And we also see that he is haunted by things he has done. Like he, he in, in that scene in the party, when we finally learn specifically, you know, what happened uh, in the past that makes him so worried about what's going to happen as a result of this recording he just made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when Moran brings it up, like Harry says, hey, you know, it's just my job to record them. And after I hand over the tapes, whatever happens after that's none of my business. But clearly, that's not what he really thinks. No, clearly, he does feel responsible. You kind and, of you kind of wonder, was he different before that job? Was he a different person before that job? You know, right. Because that does seem to have, you know, really affected him. And it mm-hmm. is, yeah, may, maybe he, maybe that was part of why he became so insular yeah, um, and so distrustful of other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, you know, the, maybe the most important secret that he keeps about himself is that he has a conscience, mm-hmm. you know, he cares, like he tries to act like he doesn't, but he obviously does. And that sense of responsibility is what drives him throughout the film. Hackman and Coppola allow us to learn all of these things about Harry and to get to know Harry by simply showing us. Yeah. Um, the movie works by allowing the audience to do the same thing that Harry does. We eavesdrop on these characters. We eavesdrop on Harry's life. We follow him. We listen to him. We get a sense of who he is from what he says and does. We aren't told anything. We're shown everything. And and some scenes, like especially that first scene when we see Harry's apartment, they're actually shot in ways that mimic surveillance. Um, like that the, the opening shot, the long overhead shot, um, some of the scenes in the apartment where the camera is kind of locked down in one position and it just pans mechanically from side to side where remember depending on where how, Harry's at. Remember how we see him the first time in the movie right it is is not a tight close-up of him or a you know a, a standard frame shot of him entering union square it's him through a surveillance camera yeah it's and it's like a where's waldo it's i mean and the last shot of the film that pan over and the pan back that's like a that's like a, a security camera yeah yeah exactly. a thing. yeah anyway exactly. sorry exactly. didn't mean to bust in and no, it's fine. No, it's exactly where I was going. And there's almost no exposition in the entire movie. We're, we're meant to watch and learn. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And the movie is about a lot of different things in, in the broad sense. It's about how impossible it is to live life as a bystander. It's about how you can't ever just watch without getting involved or at least wanting to get involved. Mm -hmm. It's about how much of what we know or think we know is due to our interpretation. Uh, The reality we experience is subjective and it's based just as much on what we think we see and hear as on what actually happens outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we see Harry struggling with this throughout the movie. And the movie is about how no matter how long we watch other people, no matter how carefully we pay attention, we can never truly know them. And we can never know for sure what they're going to do next. And that's where the suspense comes from in this movie, because Harry himself is never really threatened. Um, There are implied threats made against him a few times. And there's that last phone call where Harrison Ford says, you know, we're listening. You better not tell anybody. But you never really feel like Harry is in any immediate, like, mortal danger. Mm -hmm. The suspense comes from what are they going to do? Mm Mm-hmm. What's going to happen next? And Harry even even says that, you know, at one point to the director or or to Harrison Ford. He's like, "What is he going? What are you going to do with the tapes?" You know, that's where the suspense comes. What's going to happen? <laughs> well, it's like the the suspense comes from what's going to happen next. And the only mm-hmm. reason we care about what happens next is because Harry does. Mm-hmm. And whether we realize it or not, by the end of the movie, um, despite how hard he works to keep everyone else at a distance, we are invested in Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a great movie. The movie is is tight. It's tense. Thank God they cut it down from four and a half hours to under oh my two. God. Um, I don't know what we would get yeah. out of finding it's, out that he owns the building. I don't know what. It's, yeah, what that would. I, add. Yeah. It's yeah. impossible to imagine a, a four hour cut of this movie because it's just perfect like this. Um, it's philosophical without mm-hmm. being pretentious. It's thrilling without being lurid or sensationalist. It Mm -hmm. asks you to watch and pay attention, but it never tries your patience. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's beautifully written and shot and acted. It's just, it's fantastic. There's, Mm -hmm. I don't, there's, there's almost nothing wrong with it. It's a masterpiece. So that's what I have to say. Your turn, buddy. I liked it. I liked it a lot. You know me. I like it when someone takes noir and, and tweaks it. Harry is a modern day detective. And he has, and he espouses some of the things that modern day detectives say, you know, I'm not modern day, but noir detectives say, Mm -hmm. I don't care who the client is so long as I get paid. I don't care who I'm, who I'm spying on so long as I get paid. What are, what are those, most of the detectives do? They take pictures, smutty pictures, they follow people around and they report back to the people and they say, yeah, they're having an affair and here's the pictures. And they go, oh, Mr. Hondo, I don't know what to do. Please fuck me here in your office or whatever. And that's basically what he's doing. He's he's a detective. He's he's they say, hey, I want you to record a conversation between these these two people we know they meet all the time in in Union Square. Find out what they're talking about. And he's got the right. He even says at the beginning, I don't care what they're saying just so long as I get a clear, you know, clear recording of it. Yeah. But instead, we get a little bit more information about Harry, and this becomes less of a noir and more of a just a long character study about a man who has sunk himself deep into his work in an attempt to not feel bad, right? He's like, he obviously feels guilty. His work got a family killed, yeah. right? And even though he may say, hey... I just recorded it. What they do with it is not my fault. You know that's bullshit. 
you know, he's put up all of these layers around himself to protect himself. He knows too much now. He knows that if he can get, because all they talk about are all these times that he did these amazing surveillance things. How did you do this, Harry? How did you do that, Harry? And he's like, yeah, just turn on a microphone and pointed it at him. This is not a big deal. Leave me alone. Um, (laughs) But uh, where the other guys treat it like a trick or a hustle or, ooh, we're going to be able to do this. We're going to be record that. Something's something's eating at him. And it was eating at him from the very beginning of the movie. They just gradually let us know. Through his interactions with other people, we find out, oh, he doesn't talk about himself. He doesn't like talking about himself, you know. And, you know, he does some things that are kind of funny. Like he doesn't want people to, you know, bug him. What are they going to get from him if he's bugged? That he comes home, eats a TV dinner, and plays the saxophone all night? Ooh! (laughs) Exactly. It's one of the reasons why I really don't give a shit if someone is bugging our conversation. Like, let's say the FBI, they got a name. Steve Scheiss, Jason Harding. Every Sunday they talk, let's find out what they're talking about. I don't give a shit what they find out. What are they going to do with it? Exactly. Call us and say, stop using so many cuss words. Kids listen to this podcast. But he's paranoid about the nothing that he's doing, right? Because he knows too much. He knows there could be a bug in his room. Someone outside with a parabolic microphone could be pointing at his windows. His his refrigerator might have cameras in it. We'll find out what kind of fucking (laughs) bullshit he eats. And it's, my feeling is, is that it's kind of wrecked him this life is destroying relationships and we see he does he destroy the one with terry gar's character at the very beginning it is the obstacle between him and stan being true partners so stan leaves right yeah. we just see a bunch of the only person that he seems to have a good relationship with and that's probably because they really don't know each other is with the detective who works for him on the side that's right? true yeah that's because they're not really close friends because Harry doesn't have any close friends. Because yeah. Harry, does Harry have a family, Steve? Does he have a mommy and daddy? He writes home, dear mom and dad. Not that we've seen. Lost five more friends this week, hoping to lose <laughs> more. <laughs> Trying hard to alienate everybody. Mm-hmm. When he has the sex scene with the woman, he kind of, you can see him struggle mm-hmm. because this woman wants to talk to him, wants to get to know him. He's just lost a woman because he's closed off. He's got a couple of drinks in him. He's in a place where he feels safe. His, you know, his, his office, his work. Yeah. And he, you can see him struggling, wanting to open up, right? Wanting to talk to her. And he ultimately can. They get interrupted by some jack off on a moped. Then later, it turns out, unfortunately, he shouldn't have trusted her at all. He pays the price for opening up, which just drives him further into his little hermit crab shell than he he already is. The unfortunate part is, is they give us enough to know that he does give a shit. He still cares despite himself. You know, if he was this hard boiled, you know, if this was a 1930s noir, he would have walked off and goes, that's the way of the world, kid. And he just walks off into the fog and that would have been the end of it. Instead, we get something a little worse. He tears his apartment apart, right? Because he thinks he's being bugged. And then he just goes right back to playing the saxophone. To me, it says, oh, he found the bug. And now he can relax. 
because he's that far <laughs> fucking gone. He didn't look yeah. around and go, Jesus Christ. He felt completely justified in what he did to find yeah. the bug inside his house. More than likely, the next day, he burns the entire apartment complex to the ground and moves somewhere else. <laughs> Just moves to another building. Yeah. Point of fact, I more than likely, he moves into the warehouse where his mm-hmm. office is, right? Because then he can set up... Didn't they say he has a wire cage in his in his apartment? He does. Yeah, we see it. Yeah. 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 And it's like, dude, who gives a shit? No one cares about you that much. I mean, granted, a guy does call you at the end of the movie and says, we'll kill you because you we know, you know, that we know that, you know. Also, can you (laughs) please tell us why we did this? It's the only fucking plot hole in this entire goddamn movie. (laughs) But it's a pretty important one. Right. I always I did this with Vertigo because Vertigo has the stupidest fucking plot. If you say it out loud, it has the yeah. dumbest plot. Wait a or minute. The, the dumbest. <laughs> Why would anybody do this? The dumbest villain plot. This one is kind of like that. So you have three characters. You have Harrison Ford, Cindy Williams and the dork. Right. Yes. yes. And what they're planning on doing is killing the director. Right. Yes. Now, I, the only thing that I can come up with is that the director wanted them surveilled, right? The director suspected them, said, this guy's the best, go hire him. And more than likely, the <laughs> more than likely the the assistant, the Harrison Ford character was like, no, let's not, let's not do that. Let's not hire. Let's we don't need why why do that? We don't need to. And he probably said, do it or you're fired. And you're like, okay, fine. But we don't get anything like that, right? We don't get any explanation we have to still think that maybe harrison ford did it which makes no sense because they're like we're planning on killing a guy let's surveil two people that are in on the killing plot so that maybe he'll get the recording of it that i'll have to play to my boss for some reason they're all going they're getting the chair everybody's getting the chair (laughs) everybody's getting caught everybody's getting the chair there's no I think the implication due to all the press coverage around her and her co- husband's convenient death mm-hmm. is that more than likely an investigation is going to be opened up. Eventually, Harry's going to be called into court. Were you asked to surveil, you know, so and so and what's or nuts? Yes. Can we hear that tape? I gave it to Mr. Harrison and Mr. Ha- <laughs> you know, Harrison Ford goes, I it fell in the toilet on fire. I don't Sorry. got it. Yeah, I don't have it. Neither do they. The two that got married shortly after her husband died. Look, I don't I, listen. I'm what's a tape? Look, I, I got to go see my grandma in a country that has no extradition. OK, so bye bye. <laughs> but ultimately, none of that matters because it's not about them. It's about Harry. Yes. Right. And about how this character moves through the world. And it fucking sucks. Yeah. It fucking sucks. He's never happy. Briefly during the party, he seems to be cheering up. Yeah. During the whole, holy shit, we'd never be able to say that joke in in, in oh, 2023. Yeah. Yeah. Which yeah. is literally like a needle that, that jabs your arm. Like, oh, oh, it's 1974. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's right. Mm-hmm where he seems to be lightening up just a little bit, but I don't know if that's just a facade to put people at ease because he starts answering questions about, you know, how he did this and how he did that, you know, up until they ask about that one case. Well, because he's among, he's among his people. 
you know, like Does he's he among really? other surveillance people. And yeah, I, I mean, part of it is that they're drinking a little and he's starting to open up and lighten up a little. And and they all admire him. You know what I they mean? Love like him, all, so they love him. They think he's yeah. the greatest thing on the fucking planet. Yeah. Right. And he's just not, you know, he doesn't know how to take the compliment. I don't yeah. know if he thinks he needs, he deserves the compliment. Um, but just as he's lightening up, you know, Morton the prick brings up that job that got people killed. Yeah. And that's something that I don't think he's, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> ever going to be square with. It is not something. Yeah. And I don't know how long ago it happened, right? I don't think it was right. that long ago. A few years, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. Not like 20 years ago or anything. Like Where he packed up and left. He left everything. You know, he was established right. in New York. And he just got went out to San Francisco. And now these assholes have followed him out there, too. Right? But one of yeah. Stan's biggest complaints is because, is because he won't talk to him about any of the stuff that he's done. Right? Yeah. Trade secret crap. And Morton, all Morton wants to do, I think, is to just get his name. Right. To mm -hmm. go along with his his uh, his company. Who knew that freelance surveillance was such a hot thing that it had its own convention? I know. Right. Um, but I mean, that's what makes this such a great movie is that it's noir, but it's a character. It's like, let's say that we the, the Maltese Falcon was changed so that it became a character study of Sam alone, right? Yeah. Like an actual, we follow him everywhere and we get to see his dark moods or if he just switches to neutral and stares at the ceiling until something happens and he's like, oh, and he has to move <laughs> forward, right? Yeah, exactly. If there are deeper depths to Sam alone, we don't know him, right? Yeah. He's the guy who's always on top. He's one step ahead of him, right? He's oh, always totally. ahead of him. A lot of noir guys are like that, unless... You're a noir victim, man. Right. And, then and you're, every, you're you're constantly in over your then head. Then you're and, yeah. fucked. Yeah. <laughs> you trusting dope. What were you thinking? <laughs> then you're Fred McMurray because it always happened oh, to Fred yes. McMurray. Don't you know what movie you're in? <laughs> this guy is the main central of a noir and he's neither one of them, mm -hmm. right? He wants to be neutral, right? He yeah. wants to be and he can't do it. There's things that you can add by the end of the movie, everything's eating away at him. His sense of privacy is being eaten away. He feels betrayed by Anne, a woman that he's never even met or talked to. But mm -hmm. because he trusts, because he thought she was the one in danger and it turns out, oh, no, it wasn't her. Um, that gets turned around on him and that doesn't have a resolution for you. If you think that yeah. he's going to go, I've given this up and he burns his warehouse and walks away, <laughs> jumps, jumps on a fucking merchant sea vessel and explores the world with a parrot named Bongo. And he has a, that's not going to happen. More than likely no. he is going to just continue on with this, yeah. with this existence. And it fucking sucks. Does he get to have sex? Sure. But he'll probably never have sex with a woman again after this. No, not after that. <laughs> not after that. Because like you say, he, he, he was punished. You know, it's like he trusted somebody. He let his guard down and they stole from him. And they stole from him. Yeah. Exactly. She was all fake. She yeah. was all fake. So, uh, yeah, uh, this is one of those movies. There are parts that I do fast forward through because I know I know what's going to happen. I know what the result of it is. It's not a huge emotional beat. It's a lot of the putting the tape together stuff. Yeah, yeah. I skip to the character stuff, the end, Harry interacting with the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's not someone, he's not cool. He's not, you know, he's not. He's one not funny. 
He's not funny. He's not one step ahead of the other people. He's not particularly smart, right? Not really. Um, he, you could say he's kind of boring, except with Hackman's performance, you can see everything just boiling underneath him, yeah. right? And that's hard to pull off because at no point do they give him an opportunity to release any of that. Yeah. Except maybe tearing, maybe tearing his, his uh, apartment apart but he does it in such a methodical, you know, okay, I checked here. Nope. Yeah. Okay. I've torn, I've, I've busted holes throughout, throughout all the walls in the entire apartment. Even not there. Even <laughs> when he, even when he has to destroy the, uh, the, the religious statue, the, is it the Virgin Mary statue that he had? Like he, he, mm -hmm. he saves that for last because yeah. he doesn't want to touch that. But then after he's gone through everything else, he figures, well, I have to check there. And even after he breaks it open, like it, it, there's no catharsis. There's no, nope. he doesn't like seem upset. He just checks it. It's not there. So he just puts it down and goes off to the next thing. And where was it? We never find out where it was. I know where it was. Where was it? And in the only thing he didn't destroy. His saxophone. His saxophone. Ah. Because remember, when he calls, what do they play him? They play the recording of, because he was playing the saxophone. Mm -hmm. yeah. they, they play back. Yeah, it's like Harrison Ford plays back what Harry was just was doing just to prove, playing, yeah, just to prove that, they, that they can hear him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That's just a guess on my part, I think, because we see the saxophone at the very end of the movie. Yeah. You know, it seems to be the only thing that he does that's his. Yeah, you know, that's that's true. That's outside of being a surveillance guy. Mm -hmm. But two weeks later, more than likely, he's living in his office now, but yeah. alone because Stan's gone. Yeah. Right. He's kind of proven that he could probably do the job by himself if he really yeah, probably. needed to. Or just hire temp guys. Just yeah, yeah, exactly. Hire people for help as he needs it instead mm -hmm. of having a permanent helper. Yeah, and making sure they never get close and thoroughly vetting them before he even hires them. Yeah, you know, is it sad? Sure. Is it depressing as watching this person? Yeah, but that's the fascinating bit about this, right? Yeah. Because despite the fact that this is an extreme case, there have been plenty of times where I have felt like Harry. Oh boy! Oh, sure. Oh, when sure, I first, of course. When I first moved to San Francisco and I lived in the Tenderloin in a studio fucking apartment with almost no furniture and I could barely afford the ramen that I was cooking on the stovetop for no one to call pre-internet yeah. staring out a window at the city, you, I kind of can get some of these moments yeah. that Harry has. Mine was not on purpose, the solitude. His yeah. very much is. But I can get the fact that maybe this guy doesn't want to be alone, but feels he has to, right? Well, and also like there's something, there's something comforting and kind of safe about if you can fool yourself into thinking that you're removed from everything, you know, you're an outsider, you're just mm -hmm. an observer, you know, you're not a part of this, you're just watching. And that's God, never really, that's never God's really true. That we see at the yeah. beginning, right? Yeah. And, and that's never really true. And I think part of the, one of the points of the movie is you can't, you can't do that. You, you can never remove yourself from life. You're always a participant. You're not mm -hmm. ever going to be able to just step out and watch from the outside. Like there is no outside. Mm -hmm. And Harry, I, I, but, but if you, but if you can get to a point where you think that you're in that position, it, mm -hmm. it can feel safe because you feel like you're, because you're, feels, because nobody can touch you. You're beyond the reach of people. He but feels you're not. like he has control. Yeah. He has control of them. Yeah. And at the point where he's afraid for the client 
he's still trying to assert control over the product, mm-hmm. over what he's done, right? Yeah. Um, when the client can can sense that because they're afraid he's going to destroy the tape. That's why they right? have the the girl steal it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which still, I, I, who in the world is doing this? It can't be Harrison Ford. <laughs> Harrison Ford had to have been yelled at by the director. Give me that goddamn tape or I'm going to stove your head in with this bowling pin. And he's like, okay, I'll call him. I'll call him, please. If you have to hire someone, we'll have sex with him and steal the tape from his office. All right. I don't know where I'm going to find that person, but I'll do it. Okay. I'll do it. Sure. God. He's immediately on the phone with, with Cindy Williams. Okay. So this has gone so bad. (laughs) This is way more complicated than I thought it would be. You know, the surveillance tape that the that the director made me do of the two of you where you admit to wanting to kill him. Well, now I have to go steal that tape so I can play it for him. <laughs> I feel like we really should have diagrammed this before we put this plan into motion. I feel that there is a sequel in which this whole story is told from their point of view. <laughs> from from the Harrison from the Harrison Ford trying desperately to control this yes. murder scheme that has <laughs> flown <laughs> way off course. And it's a zany screwball comedy. It starts, it opens in this little apartment. The three of them are talking, and they're talking about bumping off the boss, right? Because the guy works for him, right? The, yeah. the, the dork works for him. The dork works there, yeah. yeah. And they're like, okay, well, let's get something together. And Harrison Ford literally tells him, okay, but if you guys are going to talk about it, you need to go to a crowded place because there are surveillance guys. And so go to Union Square, talk there. He goes, jip, jip, jipping into the office. And the director says, I want to talk to you for a second. And he's like, sure, boss. And he said, I think my wife and the dork are having an affair and I want them surveyed. And I want a tape on my desk in two days. Do you understand me? And he's like, sure. <laughs> okay, great. Good I'll, idea, I'll get, boss. I'll, I'll get right on it. And he goes, this is the card of Harry Cowell. I want you to call him now here from my phone. <laughs> <laughs> and get it set up. Oh, okay. Sure. I think they're meeting in, in Union Square. What? <laughs> <laughs> How'd you find that out? Never mind how I found out. You That's crazy. Him. You tell him, you fuck, and you get it. And you understand? You tell him, you fuck. So now Harrison Ford is trying desperately to stay out of the plot, right? Because yeah. he may want, maybe he's trying to set him up. Maybe if, maybe if everything goes tits up, he's clean. But the young lover couple, they're in trouble. Right. Well, because I kind of I kind of assumed that like maybe they were like the whole being surveilled and letting little details slip like that was all to get the director to go to that hotel room like, Mm -hmm. you know, because Harrison Ford was in on it, the dork and Cindy Williams, they were all they they were all in on it. Mm -hmm. So they knew that they were being recorded. So they let the little detail slip about, oh, we're going to be at the hotel in room 773. It's Sunday. And if I know. Yeah, if I want to stretch credulity, they made the tape on purpose to lure him to the hotel. Yeah, yeah. They, because I think because Harrison Ford plays it for him. Like Harrison Ford's not trying. Yeah, At first, it seemed when he tries to to take the tapes from Harry in that first scene, you kind of assume like, well, maybe he wants to take the tapes and not let the director hear it. But no, mm-hmm. he actually he, he's the one who's playing it. Mm-hmm. So maybe they set it up to make it seem like just as bait to get to get the director there and then once they get the director there they you know 
they burn the tapes or whatever. Yeah. Because they figure the director will show up and think he's going to catch them in flagrante delecto. And instead, they're like, ha ha, bullets for you. And they kill him. Or however they kill him. I don't know. <laughs> whatever they do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so the tape is, is there just to lure him there as evidence of something. Why they needed to involve Harry, I don't know. That's the part. Yeah. Is like, if they have the capabilities of surveilling Harry and putting a bug in his, in his apartment, then obviously... Yeah. They have the ability to just fake a surveillance tape, right? You would and think, send it, yeah. send it to the director, and use that you as bait. So I still like the idea that the director is forcing them to do it, and they don't want to. They're like, and no, they're like, oh, it's going to make things so much more complicated. And thank God they didn't do something stupid at the end of this movie. Like, but haha, Harry made a copy of the tape. Ooh, yeah, and he hit and it up his butt. And they cut to a police station and an envelope lands on a desk. Yeah. And someone says, Harry, we want you to check this out. And he goes, I'll look into it right now. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <sighs> Who am I? The AV department. And then we get to get a sequel where he gets to shoot Cindy Williams with his gigantic gun. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Dirty Harry would totally shoot him. A woman. I mean, and then he'd just feel bad about it. He would just get drunk that night and be like, "I can't believe what I've done." And then the I don't think he would even get upset about it. I mean, he's had friends killed, and That's he wasn't true. that upset. And he kills so many people that he could have arrested. <laughs> like he's no. just like he killed Garrick. He killed. He uh, did kill Garrick. Yeah, he did. Um, it was Callahan, the big one. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if. Because the famous line is, this is, you know, this is a Colt 45 Magnum and it can blow your head clean off. Clean off. Yeah. Do we ever get to see a head get blown clean off I, from that gun? I don't think he ever blows a head clean off. Usually when he shoots people, he hits them in the chest. Yeah. Yeah. The Dirty Harry series, this was before headshots. This was before John Wick when headshots just became a thing that happened in movies like 25 times. Um, yeah. Dirty Harry always hit him. He always aimed for the center of mass. He didn't aim for the head. <laughs> so anyway, as because we've got way off topic. Yes. Yay. Recommend, Steve? Highly recommend. Great movie. Me too. Guys, you need to be in a mood for it. Don't sit down and thinking this will cheer me up. It won't. No. no. But, uh, but if you're hungry for a little red meat, you want a little, you want some substance. Yeah. Mood, something that'll make you think about the characters and the situation. This is a movie for you. Absolutely. This is this is along the same lines. As as the third man, but not as funny. <laughs> That's true. That's true. The third it man doesn't has have a, it, it, it doesn't have Orson Welles with a twinkle in his eye, <laughs> or uh, or the um, who's the lead guy? Uh, Joseph Cotton. The no Joseph Cotton. Yes, I know. He's not that funny in the movie. I'm talking no, about the, the commandant. What's his name? Uh, oh oh god, yes, I can't mm-hmm. think of who. Yeah, but yeah, I can't remember his yeah. name. But he's hilarious. Yeah. 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 Anyway, me too. Steve, not recommend something. Very oh, good. Oh, oh boy. I'm going to not recommend a movie. It's it, it it has to do with surveillance but in a different way. Um it's also kind of a conspiracy movie. Um it's a movie that came out in 1995 and it stars Sandra Bullock. Oh. And it's called The Net. Mm. Okay. And I resent this movie. I resent this movie because <laughs> it has a premise that is very similar to Nowhere Man, one of my all-time favorite TV shows. Because okay. it's about it's about someone who oh oh she finds out something that she's not supposed to find out, and now her identity how, has been erased. 
How right, long like that's, did Nowhere Man last on TV? One season. Okay. 25 episodes, I think. One, did one it end on a cliffhanger? Season. Sort of, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the way it ended is like, because it didn't get picked up for another season, the ending feels definitive, but it's clearly the kind of thing where if they had gotten a second season, it, you know, like it would have, there would have been another shoe to drop. You know, mm -hmm. but it did, but it, there it was the end of the show, so there was no shoe to drop. But, okay, um, but anyway, anyway, so Sandra Bullock, the net, uh, also starring Dennis Miller. Remember when they tried to make Dennis Miller into an actor? Remember that? No, that national that national nightmare that we all lived through, where they were I putting Dennis Miller in movies. Sorry, I don't remember <laughs> uh, that. Cha cha. Ah, <laughs> ah, you feel my pain. Mm -hmm. Um, the 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 idiot who convinced people he was smart. Yep. because he remembered some references to things mm -hmm. dennis miller um but yeah so sandra bullock she's like uh like a, a computer programmer like a like a data analyst and she she stumbles onto something that she shouldn't have found out and she ends up you know being on the run from all these all these dark in clandestine powers that are trying to silence her and you know blah 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 it's not good um it is in fact quite poor i think but you know, it was one of Sandra Bullock's first big movies. Like she became a, a star after Speed, which is sure. a great movie. And then like a year later, she did The Net, which is not a great movie, but I think it did okay at the box office because it was Sandra Bullock and it was like the first big boom period of her career and everybody went to see it. But it's a piece of garbage. So if you enjoy the French or the French connection, if you enjoy the French connection, I if you enjoy the, the conversation, if you enjoy the conversation, and you want to see something that's pretty much exactly the opposite of the conversation, mm -hmm. uh, then you should go see The Net. But if you want to see a good movie, I would not recommend The Net. So there you go. Yay. The movie that I'm not going to recommend, as you guys know, I not recommend something from the same year as the movie that we just reviewed, and it's 1974. One of the problems with the success of The Godfather is that a lot of shitty people thought that they could make mafia movies. Oh, boy. One of those people was a man by the name of Duke Mitchell. And Duke Mitchell would not only write, but also direct and star in his films. He'd self-fund them. Oh, my God. That's right. There's nothing That always worse. turns out well. <laughs> some of the worst and some of the most hilarious movies are vanity projects. Mm -hmm. And it's usually by someone who has nothing to do with Hollywood. You know, you get some kind of lawyer somewhere who wants to make an action film where he's the lead and he writes, of course, he writes a sex scene in there. Of course he does. Why wouldn't you? And he's also a singer. I think the movie I'm thinking of is Get Even or as, or as the red letter media, media people call it, Get Even because they yeah. smushed the two. <laughs> get even. And not only is he a karate expert, but he's, <laughs> he's also a country western singer. He sings oh a song that is so fucking awesome he has i think two extended sex scenes with the poor lady who's in it their theory wow. about it being for whatever reason there's a connection about it about vanity projects and the main character is wearing a black tank top which really started with the ultimate vanity project director breen yes who always seems to be he's Our boy the, neil breen he writes them he directs them. He's the lead actor in them. And the character yep. he always plays is the savior of everything. He yes. knows everyone. He's the best at everything <laughs> ever. And he always writes an awful, awkward, 
Oh. passionless you feel yeah. so bad for the actress sex scene that you you literally avert your eyes when it you comes can't look this. it's it is, it is, it is legitimately hard to watch it it's like oh I, god i don't I know can't i can't remember which movie it is it's the one when he gets out of the hospital and he's got these huge bandages all over okay. his face yes and there's a sex scene in a shower <laughs> I know. I can't remember which moment. I remember the, the, the scene. The yeah. bandages all over his face. Ugh. Anyway, is this akin to that? Well, this has kind of gained a cult following. Duke Mitchell was a singer, um, and he was like a headliner in Vegas and Los Angeles and stuff like that. But he would take his money and he would dump them into these awful films. And some people have found the awful films and they find them enjoyable. I, I the only one that I've seen because the other one was just recently. Um, released um, is the movie that I'm not recommending. And that went by the name The Executioner. Oh, wait. Or like father, like son. No, wait. Actually, its actual name is <clears throat> Massacre Mafia Style. And nice. aside, aside from being explosively violent, which is all it really has going for it, it's the long, boring piece of shit. He, he does... <laughs> He does match wits because basically it's about this mafia guy, the son of a mafia guy who wants to be a mafia guy. And he wants to take his mafia stuff from the East Coast to Los Angeles, because why not? And yeah. he, he goes up against a super pimp. What was his name? <laughs> super pimp. I know it was something like I don't want I can't I don't I don't want to sound racist, but I think this is the character's name. Super Coon was the name oh of the God. pimp. Oh, my God. See, if that was the name of like a black exploitation movie made by and, actual black filmmakers, that sounds like that would be amazing. But exactly, knowing but that it, it wanted it, it was knowing knowing that it was made by white people, it's like, oh fuck, really? There's, oh my god! There's a a monologue by him from this movie in which he, you know it's him, a bunch of mafia guys, and this old woman in which he goes on and on about how. This woman suffered and her hands smelled like oregano and good herbs. And she, you know, she came to this country and we put the the monkey and the organ grinder in her hands. And what have we paid her back with? Murder. And he just goes on and these other <laughs> goombas are sitting around sitting around the table, just like, well, okay, well, I guess we we're supposed to. I guess to he had to something, I guess he had something to get off his chest. I don't know. <laughs> It's just a self-funded, wow. self-funded garbage. And I wish I had written down the name of the movie that they filmed but never released. Oh my God, what was it? It had Pope in the title. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, it's gonna drive me crazy, but I don't care. But if, if oh you, my God. if you get, oh, let me. See, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna. You can look things up on Google. I'm gonna do it too. Yeah, look it up. You got it. You, you got your. You, your, your, your uh, go ahead. You know what Duke, Duke Mitchell was famous for? The movie that he's famous made famous no, for. I, I don't. Now you, of course, you and I have both seen. You know, um, I think it's Dracula meets a uh, Brooklyn gorilla. That famous movie. <laughs> oh, yes. That timeless tale. That cinematic no, actually, masterpiece, the, of course. The actual name of it is Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. Well, in that movie, they have a clone of Martin and Lewis, and he's half of that clone team. Oh, he's, mm -hmm. he's one half of fake Martin and Lewis. Mm -hmm. um, what is it? Come on. Give it to me. 
give it a me. What was the movie that he never he never released? It was eventually oh, <laughs> oh boy. the movie was called Gone with the Pope. <laughs> Gone with the Pope. Ah, uh, it sounds it, was, it just sounds great, doesn't it? It was about some thugs that that want to kidnap the Pope and hold him for ransom, where every single Catholic has to donate a dollar to his ransom. So that's I don't know how much money that is. So it's high concept. It's, it's very high concept. High concept movie, Super yeah. high concept movie. Don't see it. I know that <laughs> I know that he has a cult following. Duke Mitchell has a cult following right now. Don't. The only other thing that he did was famous was that he was the singing voice for Fred Flintstone. For fuck's sake. Don't be so impressed with that. <laughs> who wouldn't want to see a movie directed by that guy? Mm-hmm. Okay, Steve, you know what time it is. Uh, is it time for me to make a terrible choice? No, it's baseball season. <gasps> Yay! I listened to a, a, a spring training game on the radio the other night. Yay! Good for it you. Wonderful. It was wonderful. But I'm not going to make you make a terrible choice. I'm going to tell you no? something different. No. Okay. This next one is our last baseball movie. Because uh, we've we've reviewed quite a few baseball movies over we're, the years. We're starting to hit some of the rotten ones. And I don't know. <laughs> Interest in just doing all the bad baseball movies because there's a shit ton of them. Right? Oh my god, yes. I have tinkered with the idea that after we do this one, we re- we return to one of our favorite baseball films, The Bad News Bears. But we did a review of it, and I'm going to leave it there because we gushed enough about That's that true. movie. So this is going to be our last baseball movie. There is no choice for Steve to make. I am the petty dictator of this show. <laughs> yes. So the movie, the movie that we're going to review next is what Steve says is his favorite baseball movie. I think. No, no, no. His next favorite baseball. Okay. Because last year we did your favorite. That's true. Yes, we did. So the movie is Field of Dreams. Oh, yes. I do love me some Field of Dreams. We want to get all the jokes or understand the number of times we've referenced this fucking movie over the last nine years, then please watch Field of Dreams before our next show drops. And thank you guys for listening in. For Late Seating, this is Jason Harding. And see a movie this week. And this is Steve Shives. Remember, folks, we'll be listening to you. Wait, are you? How? How am I supposed to do that? No, no, I have this thing. <laughs> it turns it, it turns everybody's phone into a microphone. When did you do that? And who gave I, you permission to do that? I don't oh, want to spy on my listeners. Well, you don't have to, but if you want to, you can. You just you dial their phone to, number. So undo it right now. Make it right now? It. Yeah, apparently you want to. I don't. I didn't ask you to do that. Why are you doing it? I thought you would I thought I thought it would make you happy. Okay, tell you what, you go through all of them. Okay. You only find the murderers, the creepers, or whatever. Okay, yes. So we can report them to the authorities. Okay, okay. Then I want a separate file for all the ones that are having phone sex for no reason. You got it, buddy. To protect their privacy. Okay. To protect their privacy, to keep other people from finding out. First one, murderers and weirdos. Well, not weirdos. I mean, I, I'm assuming that most of them are weirdos. If yeah. it was against the law to be a weirdo, both of you and I would be in jail. Exactly. So just 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 criminally actionable stuff. Right. 
Right. Yeah, not just general well, guard variety weirdness. I don't really give a shit if someone stole something and didn't injure Okay, it. yeah. I don't give so a like, shit. Like like murderers, like hardcore evil shit. Sure. Not um, yeah, like unless, somebody course, who shoplifted, right. like who gives a shit? But except yeah. unless the murder is murder is justified, there's like a okay. reason behind it, you know. Like, so 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 unjustifiable murderers. That's right. I want unjustifiable okay. murderers, and that's for the most part it for that folder that first folder. for that for that folder and then and then people, people who have phone sex who called someone and said hey i just murdered someone for no reason right okay just okay. that okay. okay okay i got it all right and then the next folder phone sex phone sex okay and if there is no phone sex can you call some of them and have phone sex and, with them and, and have phone sex with them Mm -hmm. I can try. Okay. Because I I'm mean, thinking, maybe if, if they're fans of the show, that might be an in. I can be like, hey, guess who? Because you know. I'm thinking about creating a podcast that's very much along the lines of that Monty Python sketch, Blackmail. Oh, interesting. You know, where it has a counter and a countdown and someone has to call in and, and get them to and pay them in order to stop showing the video. Yeah. Kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah, except you're going to be the bait, okay? Okay, I I can do that. I can I'm, you? Yeah, I'll be the bait. Yeah. Okay, right. yeah. Do whatever yeah. you know. Do whatever they want over the phone sex thing. Hey, can you zoom it? <laughs> can you zoom for them? the for the patrons for the That's patrons right, for the patrons to keep them safe from all the weirdos who to keep them safe? Yes, absolutely for the patrons so that so that to keep other people from finding out. And just think about what what kind of, you know, that'll be good for your self-esteem, Steve. Having all that phone sex with strangers? You yeah, mean? exactly. Yeah. You're like, hi, I'm Steve Shies. You listen you listen to me on the Let Me Listen podcast, the late, late seating and the ensign's log. You want to have some phone sex? Some dirty <laughs> and if you listen and if you listen to our episode where we reviewed the conversation, I think you know what this is. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you say? This is blackmail. <laughs> Going once? Going twice? Oh, I I oh I'm sorry. Can you put your dad on the phone? Okay, thank you, honey. Oh my god. Daddy's a man with phone sex is on the phone for you. <laughs> is it one of the guys from late seating? Give me the phone. Give me the phone. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I've been hoping for this phone call ever since they reviewed the conversation. <laughs> yes. Play it cool, play it cool. Hello. <laughs> right now you want to go right now i have a i have an empty closet just a second honey go play go play somewhere <laughs> go Outside. play with your toys here's it get that ball i know i threw it over the fence figure it out <laughs> go talk to the neighbors you should know the neighbors i always knew my neighbors when i was your age get out get out get out anyway hi, how you doing? <laughs> perfect cool it's awesome. a plan Ugh, see amazing. you were and you were against it see you were against it and now Whoa. now you can see that the world whole world is open a, a, a bright shiny new world of bringing unjustifiable murderers of to justice and listening to other people's phone and, sex and forcing my best friend to have phone sex with our fans so i can yes. blackmail them yes great <laughs> the gravy train's about to come in buddy we're finally we Ooh, finally oh, found a way to cash in on this shit explain that expression to me how often gravy is gra gravy shipped by train apparently back when that idiom first caught on it was being shipped by train quite a lot 
Okay. I have no idea about the history of the shipping was, methods used to transport gravy. But it must have been trains at some point. A grave, do, do people know what, how gravy is made? It, apparently it used to be made by the tanker car. <laughs> and then they would just hitch it to a train and drag it along. Okay. All right. And then they associated that with money because somehow gravy and money are like, I've never heard anyone say, I'm making all that gravy. Give me no. all that gravy. I want it. Pour it on me. And I'm bringing home the gravy. Nobody says that. Fill my it's only in with that creamy, only <laughs> creamy sausage gravy. Gravy only means money when referenced in relation to a train. Yeah, because I think of something different when I think of gravy. I don't. I don't think of money when I think of gravy. You don't. I think of, I think of prison. Prison gravy. Yeah, I think of fill me with your gravy. Oh yeah, like toss salad. They ruined that phrase, didn't they? Yeah, they did. <laughs> Would you like me to toss your salad? Absolutely not. I'm here with my wife and kids. <laughs> oh, wait, you meant the, oh, of course, yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I'll toss my own salad. Thank you very much. What's funny about that? Yeah, changes the meaning of the song at the end of Frasier. Yeah, because what are scrambled eggs? I'll tell you when we. Oh, okay. Okay. That'll yeah, just be yeah. something for the patrons. <laughs> Smarten me up to the prison lingo that I don't know. <laughs> Well, not very many people know that the song he's singing is a prison song. Uh, <laughs> it's all kinds of code. It's just nothing but it's prison code. Yeah. Kelsey Grammer would know, wouldn't he? Anyway, oh, let's end the show. Bye, folks. <laughs> bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Late Seating is a Let Me Listen podcast production featuring Steve Shives and Jason Harding. Produced by Jason Harding. Theme music, Rollin' at Five, composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. You can find more Let Me Listen podcast productions at our website at www.letmelistenpodcast.com. You can also find us on Stitcher, iTunes, or just about anywhere you download podcasts. Late Seating is a listener-supported podcast. If you would like to support Late Seating or any of the other Let Me Listen productions for as little as $1 a month, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Listen. And thanks for listening.